Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Wonderful. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Let me add my welcome. As Lizzie said, I'm Eve. I wonder whether anyone uh, who was here last week or maybe has caught up on the podcast has been um, reading the passage just before this about the supremacy of Christ. I encourage you, if you haven't done, to be dwelling in that amazing passage about Jesus uh, throughout this month. And it will help us to really get to the depths of all that Paul is sharing with us in this letter to the Colossians. Last week, we looked together at Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. Paul and Timothy thanked God for the church's faith in Jesus and their love for one another. These two things were inseparable in the life of the early Christians, their faith and trust in all that Jesus was and what he did, and then their love that spilled over into this new community. Paul prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which we discovered really means growing more in the knowledge of the person of Jesus, building that relationship with him, filled with his spirit, knowing the mind of Christ for each and every situation, something that I think lots of us long for, particularly in a new year. What is your will, God? What would you have me do and say and be? We do that as friends of Christ, that Jesus calls us his friends. We were reminded that God delights to strengthen his people and helps us endure the highs and lows of life. And after that, as I've mentioned, Paul goes into this prophetic and profound proclamation of who Jesus is. It's what we sing about. It's who we worship. And later tonight at the 1830, we'll be having a conversation about that passage. Particularly, it's the way that the sermons lie this term. And if you're um, online, you could watch that or do listen to it on the podcast just to give us that extra bit of this um, book as we look through it. Through trusting in the Son, that is trusting in the claims of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, in his faithfulness and what he's done for us on the cross and in the resurrection, we gain a future hope, eternal life with God. But the good news is that that hope isn't just for the future, it breaks into our here and now and impacts every area of our life and the world as God's kingdom comes. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that hope regularly. When you, we look at the world, we look at the news, we have access to what's going on all over the place. And as we look at chapter two this morning, I've had this thought about a sort of title or phrase that helps me bring what I'm trying to say into kind of one sentence. Because in the midst of uh, what we're reading about in our press about cover-ups, about deceit, about uh, what's been happening behind the doors of earthly power um, 12 months ago. Um, This phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know, has been in my mind as I've thought of this passage. And often as well in our context and in Britain, that's quite a cynical phrase. It speaks of being able to get into places that you wouldn't otherwise, of um, 
kind of things exchanging hands. It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's a cynical phrase. But as we look at this passage today, I hope that it becomes a hopeful phrase for us as the person we know, the person of grace and truth is Jesus, and that shapes our reality. So I don't know if you've ever used that before in a cynical way, and I hope you'll walk out today, and that'll be a phrase in your mind this week in different situations. I know Christ, and this is how that changes everything. And so as we look at this passage, we see, again, Paul being very open and honest as a pastor in the first two verses. He's contending for the church, and his goal is that they are encouraged in heart and united in mind. I don't know if any of you as well, any of us would like that this morning, to leave encouraged in our hearts and united as a church. And we have those wonderful phrases, so that, in order that. Um, Often we try and kind of justify ourselves, but um, those things are really important in these passages. He wants them to be encouraged in heart and united in mind so that they may have the riches of complete understanding that relating to the knowledge of God, of what God is like, what he wants for the world. In order that, not just one so that with Paul, you get stacks and stacks of them. They may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. This is the claim of Christ that the mystery of God throughout the whole story of God and his people has been made known. God has made himself knowable to his people. In Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, described as treasure and riches to know Jesus. He wants them to know fully the person of Jesus. And these were Christians who had come from a Gentile background. They hadn't perhaps had the full Jewish understanding of their heritage and identity as the people of God, much like many of us as we have come to know Jesus. Again, verse four, I tell you, So that, they must be like, oh, okay, another one, right, make a note. Paul says, I tell you this, so that no one would deceive you by fine-sounding arguments or plausible arguments. He wants them to know the truth of Christ so that they're not hoodwinked by anyone else or any other system of living. I don't know about you, I want to know the truth. I want to live in the best way possible. I want to live and pursue a way that is true and just and good, that the world would know Jesus and would also be transformed. We talk about wanting the world to be a better place, be the change you want to see. And Paul is letting the Colossians in to how that happens in his kingdom. In verse eight as well, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So Paul is making sure that they are not deceived or taken captive by things other than the person of Jesus. This language is the language of slavery of idolatry and idols, things that people put their trust in instead of their creator God revealing himself in Jesus. And we might not think that there are many kind of idols now. We often uh, don't have little things made of wood or shrines in our homes. Some of us might. 
But they take different forms now, these things that can enslave us. There are wonderful passages from Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 that echo Isaiah chapter 44 that talks about idols, and it's quite ironic in its language because it just pulls apart the fact that um, in Isaiah's time, he was saying, you take things that were created and you make something of it like an idol from wood and you talk to it and you want it to respond and bless you, but you're using the same source, the same wood for your fire. And one thing that Paul does is just lifts the lid and starts to unravel some of the things that are often taken for granted. So how might the Colossians be deceived and how might we might be deceived today? How does it make a difference who we know rather than what we know? Well, scholars have said different things about what was happening in Colossians and whether there were actual false teachers that Paul was coming against or whether he wanted just to present that but just give them the truth, the good stuff, so that when they came up against their culture around them, they would know how to trust in Jesus. One of the big um, things that was happening all around the early church is um, people saying that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, wasn't who he said he was, wasn't risen from the dead, wasn't reigning. And that was something that Paul continued to come up against again and again. And there were Jewish elements to this deception, part of coming out of uh, the heritage of Judaism, the religious festivals we see named in the passage, Um, legalism of having to do certain things in order to win God's love, and salvation, and that's mentioned as well with circumcision in the passage. And then there are pagan elements, so um, in the wider Greek culture, lots and lots of different gods, uh, lots of different choices of how you could um, add to your life, and those we see in the passage were things like worshipping angels, um, ascetic practices, which I had to look up just to remind myself what that means. That means like severe self-discipline. Um, and abstaining from certain things and really reining it in, Um, not uh, in obedience to something other than Jesus or to yourself, Um, and that being sort of so over the top that it becomes, um, it takes away life rather than it gives life. Paul responds to these, um, these things, these Jewish elements and these pagan elements, with truth about who Jesus is, and how their position with him and their identity is secure being in Christ and in baptism. Often we see baptism as a very individualistic thing with our response to Jesus, and there is an element of that. But it was the key way that people were initiated and brought into the family of the church. It was a communal event, and it was much more about what Jesus was doing, God was doing in the community, than simply our response to Jesus. And to know that they were baptized, that all those promises were true for them in Jesus was really important. In verse 9, Paul reminds them, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He is the head over every power and authority. He doesn't really go into why the other things are wrong. He keeps telling them about Jesus. And for us, we might think, well, we might not think of having, you know, 
religious arguments, religious things around us that are holding us back. But it depends how long you've been in the church, how long you've been in the Church of England or another denomination. And there are things that sometimes we realize have become uh, legalistic, things that we absolutely have to do, otherwise God's grace won't be given to us. Or festivals, traditions, something we have to do before becoming a Christian. And again, we can see from this that those things needn't take us captive, needn't enslave us. That doesn't mean that every week we come to church, by the way, you have to sit there going, oh my goodness, is this okay? Oh my goodness, is this okay? Oh my goodness, is this okay? Because sometimes we can get ourselves into that state. It's good to be reflective, but that's why the church is communal, that's why we have tradition, that's why we have um, corporate ways of discerning the will of God. We know that hearing from God's word is good. We know that receiving communion together is good. Those things have been passed down for a reason. And then we think about the pagan elements, the Greek culture of the time. And I think that's got a lot more similarities actually with our culture around us in particularly the West, where there's been a move away from uh, acknowledgement of a creator God, of our Jewish Christian heritage, And now we have the options to build a life and a spiritual life however we like. There are idols in our culture and in the West. Some of these things we might think because we can see them or we can hear about them or learn about them a bit more easily. So things that involve worshipping aspects of creation rather than creator. Some of us might have had experience of um, new age spiritualities, of angels, of crystals, tarot, reiki, things that claim to have saving or healing power outside of the creator God who we know in Jesus. And God invites us through these passages to know that God has made himself knowable in the person of Jesus, that we don't need to set up other ways of being saved or whole other than coming to him. But there are also lots of other idols and ideologies, particularly in the West, that we kind of swim in the water of, that we don't always take time to reflect on. And we live in a time post-Christianity being um, the water that we swam in. And so a lot of the things we take for granted that people are intrinsically valuable that there should be human rights, that we should be able to um, have human dignity, that's all rooted in Christ, in the spread of Christianity in the world. But it's been untethered from a creator. So we think that stuff's obvious and we're trying to make it so that everybody gets a piece. But we haven't acknowledged that there is a creator, a designer, one who has good plans and purposes that together we can submit to. We're not deceived or taken captive by Yahweh, by God who is the creator. He's good and he is who he says he is and he does what he says he does. One of the prayers of the Church of England says that, um, praises God and says, in whose service is perfect freedom. We're called friends. We're also called in the Bible slaves of Christ but it's a perfect freedom in the service to him because he has rescued and ransomed us. There is a story of redemption, 
not a story of it's all within ourselves to find. And we see this a lot around us, this idea of progress, this assumption that the world is becoming a better place, that humanity is able to solve everything and find the solutions within ourselves. Of globalization, of capitalism, of, and the ideologies take the shape of economic systems, political systems, ways of identifying who human beings are and way, the way we identify ourselves. And all of these require faith, they require trust that that way of viewing the world is true. And it takes a bit of unraveling and unpicking in time to see what has taken hold. Because they can all seem plausible and sound fine. They can be convincing, both in the arguments for them, but also in the spiritual forces that are around in the world. But Paul keeps coming back to the person and reality of Jesus, the change that the death and resurrection has made in the world and in the cosmos. And it takes a little while, but some good questions to ask as you go through your week is, um, what do I think I need to be okay? If I have this or if I do this, I'll be okay. Or um, when we go to spend our money or use our time or our relationships, what are the assumptions that we have of how things should be? And then just say, why do I think that? Where does that come from? That's a really good thing to do in our small groups and to help one another see the person of Christ. And at the end of... um, chapter two, there seems to be this encouragement to freedom. You're free from all of those things. And we might think, much like we do now, as long as it's okay for me, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, then I'm free to do it, this is fine. And we become our own king. But then we head straight into chapter three and four, and I encourage you to read ahead and to listen next week, to see that there are boundaries, there are good ways of living that enable everyone to thrive and flourish, but they're centered in the person of Jesus, not in the pools of the world. And the conclusion of this passage is found in the middle of it in verses six and seven. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Christ Jesus as Lord is the overarching statement. Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. The rooted there is a once and for all word. You are rooted in Christ, particularly in your baptism. And then the build up is the present tense, the continual growth of learning what it is to follow Jesus. Jesus is the solid reality of God, Lord of all. And the things that happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, the disarming of all other spiritual forces, is the kingdom reality that should shape everything else we do. Paul wants to bring the Colossian Christians to maturity and understanding in heart, mind, in behavior, in their conviction that the only plausible way to live is founded on the person of Jesus and to to then submit everything to his obvious kingship. It becomes obvious that we want to go to Jesus. And that's expanded on in the next two chapters. 
We come back to this, it's not what you know, it's who you know. All other of these kind of systems and ideologies are based on ideas. In Jesus, we find that our lives is based on a person, a person who has come and made himself known, made himself vulnerable, showed us the upside down kingdom. It's who we know that shapes how we think, how we respond to him. And in communion in a moment, we're going to step into the way, step back into company with the presence of Jesus. And the mystery is revealed in bread and wine, in things that we can take and eat and be filled with the presence of Christ. We worship in resistance to all these other claims on our lives. So as we leave here, having received the bread, having stepped into that true reality, think about it's not what we know, it's who we know. How can I know the person of Jesus more this week? Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.